It's Thursday, March 24th, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Mavroides, senior writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel, and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Ettinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Uh, good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Uh, again, lots of to- lots to talk about today. Uh, Lee, let's start off talking about your column in California on your mind this week. You talk about, quote, California's socialist math proposal. Um, that's the headline of your article. You write that the first draft of the state's math curriculum proposal has been widely criticized for inserting words such as social justice and whiteness into lesson plans. A second draft has been released, and while you explain it has been sanitized of progressive language, the substance still remains the same. It would, quote, eliminate classes for high achievers and continue to insist that traditional math teaching is to blame for many minority students' ability to learn, unquote. Uh, Lee, why aren't students learning well in math in the state? Uh, what needs to be addressed? And why don't you think the new curriculum approach will improve learning outcomes? Jonathan, math scores in California have have been really abysmal now for 30, 35 years. And we keep seeing new proposals from the education system about, you know, that there's sort of the day's new flavor and the day's new flavor is supposed to make a big difference. And, um, <clears throat> and it never does. And what we see is Asian students being proficient or higher at roughly a two thirds to 70% rate. White students being proficient or higher at about a 50% rate. But then you go down to Latino uh, Hispanic students and Black students, and those proficiency rates are about 10 to 20 percent, depending upon the year in the district, which is really unacceptable. So we all know that something needs to be done here, and the Department of Education is pursuing this from the idea that if social justice, if anti-racist thinking is inserted into math education, then voila, that will be the magic one we can weigh over wave over state mathematics education, and that will make a big difference. Um, so what's ironic here is that you know, math is a pretty neutral subject. It's, it's never been taught with politics injected into it. And that first proposal that came out, over 1,200 teachers and professors in the areas of science and technology and math, and also professionals working privately um, people who hire those with the STEM background came out and signed a letter uh, indicating, uh, indicating the following. For all the rhetoric in this framework about equity and social justice and culturally appropriate pedagogy, there's no realistic hope for a more fair, just, equal, and well-stewarded society if our schools uproot long-proven, reliable, and highly effective math methods and instead try to build a mathless, brave new world on a foundation of unsound ideology. So over 1,200 people signed that, signed that letter. Um, and the second draft has just come out. And it's now available for public comment if anyone wants to go onto the 
the Department of Education website and find uh, and find the link for the math curriculum. Mm-hmm. And the very aggressive uh, critical race theory type types of statements have been deleted from the first draft. But the content remains very much um, one that tries to incentivize teachers to insert things such as social justice and students' political consciousness. And in nowhere is there any type of convincing data that says this will be what Latino students and, and Black students need. In fact, if anything, what we're seeing is that Hispanic students are taking these types of courses and <clears throat> and not understanding them uh, and wanting to learn, wanting to be able to get ahead, but not really having the luxury of trying to think about white privilege and white supremacy and what's going to work uh, from the standpoint of tenured professors who like to think about this stuff. Um, so this is really going to be, uh, this is going to be, I think, a step backwards because the real problem we have in the state's math education program is we don't have enough teachers who are enthusiastic about the topic and who really understand math deeply. We have an awful lot of teachers who they themselves are not comfortable with mathematics and therefore they can't be really effective teachers. So what we really need to do is hire better math teachers and provide additional support for those who right now aren't particularly good math teachers. And when we look around the world um, and we look at the countries that are really, really improving in mathematics, countries such as Poland and Finland, uh, Shanghai, China, what they all have in common is that they hired highly qualified, very, very competent teachers. Mm-hmm. We also know that the teachers are given an awful lot of autonomy, an awful lot of independence, an awful lot of responsibility, which is really the opposite of what we see here in terms of the kind of union contracts that are present in California schools. We also know that the kids uh, are expected to achieve, and the kids will achieve based on how hard they work. That's an expectation that's provided to kids. Uh, And what we're doing here now is really taking away the ability of teachers really to think independently, to think outside the box, we're taking away expectations of kids. Um, and you know, anytime you get into these areas of trying to make mathematics or science about social justice or critical race theory, um, you necessarily get pushed down a road of those who oppress and those who are victims. And, and that's not what we wanna do with kids trying to learn math. We want to help them understand that they can do it, that they're expected to do it. And in that piece, I spoke a little bit about um, a famous Latino math teacher back in the 70s and 80s named Jaime Escalante. And there's a movie made about him called Stand and Deliver with Edward James Olmos. And um, and he he showed that you can go in and if into a poor high school, a high school that doesn't perform very well in terms of teaching math, and get kids to stand and deliver. And and I note a a really remarkable statistic, which was in the late 1980s, after Escalante had been at Garfield High School, which is in East Los Angeles, uh, serving a primarily very poor uh, Hispanic community, 
that by the late 1980s, over one quarter of all Mexican-Americans in the U.S. Uh, high school students who were passing the calculus advanced placement test were just from Garfield High School, just from that one high school. So, you know, so the question becomes, um, you know, Jaime Escalante figured it out 40, oh, over 40 years ago. Um, you know, it's time for us to figure it out. And when we look at the when we look at the bulk of evidence, it's about getting better teachers, getting teachers who are excited, giving the giving them the independence to thrive, and making sure that they're responsible uh, for their outcomes. Um, we're not seeing any of that in the way California education is being structured now. So this is just going to be this is just going to be another expensive failure in our ability to to teach our kids. So, you know, uh, Jaime Escalante passed away in 2010, and I think a lot of sensibility in California public education uh, passed away long before that. Um, I have uh, been looking through the uh, curriculum report. Uh, here's chapter two, Lee, a teacher is considered exemplary for promoting, quote unquote, sociopolitical consciousness. Uh, you go on uh, elsewhere in chapter two, uh, teachers are told they should take a, quote unquote, justice oriented perspective at any grade level, K through 12, in order to empower their students politically. Uh, fast forward to chapter seven, teachers are told to have students do practice exercises and data analysis in the context of, quote unquote, environmental or social justice. Um, simple question, Lee, who is coming up with this stuff? In other words, if you are a listener to this podcast, if you are a concerned California parent worried about your kid getting indoctrinated to this kind of approach to math, you know, who do you call and demand action from? Do you call your lawmaker? Is there a board in Sacramento that's coming up with this? Who's, who's thinking up this stuff? Yeah, well, there's, you know, the general tendency that really became very heightened uh, around the time of George Floyd to very aggressively push anti-racist thinking into the into K through 12 education. Um, and we've talked about the California ethnic studies mandate uh, before and how that's done a bit of a U-turn and has become much more politicized, much more aggressively critical race theory than, um, than what the California Department of Education actually approved. Mm -hmm. so, um, so schools, I mean, an awful lot of schools are, are going in uh, on this, you know, kind of hook, line, and sinker. Right. And it goes beyond, it goes beyond the, politici the politicization of math to the point where this proposal also is pretty much going to put an end to accelerated classes, what would be called gifted classes in the past. And of course, using the word gifted now in education is going to be, is going to be, uh, that's really verboten now. Uh, that, that's going to be a term that goes away because if, if, if one student is called gifted and the other isn't, then the implication is that other student is not gifted. Um, the, the proposal talks about keeping everybody in one class. And, um, you know, I've been a college teacher for, for 30 years. Um, and I can just tell you from, from my experience, including, including with highly motivated PhD students, there's a wide distribution of knowledge. There's a wide distribution of learning abilities. You simply cannot make the class interesting and accessible and ambitious and challenging for everybody at the same time. The proposal tries to pretend that can be done. Um, I read through the proposal. I saw lots of words saying we can keep everybody in the same class, and the uh, you know, and and the kids who can the kids who can do more will be just fine. But I simply don't see how that's going to come about. And there's a long tradition of moving really, really high achieving math, uh, math learners 
through material, making sure they're challenged, making sure they can reach their potential. And those are the, those are the people, those are the future adults who are going to be running Apple and Google and, and, and the National Science Foundation. I mean, we need them. We need them to get pushed to their potential. And I simply don't see how this is going to happen under this proposal. And it certainly doesn't spell out, spell out how this is going to happen. Okay, so you're telling me this is the merry work of educrats, um, plain and simple, but how does this get stopped? Is there a vote in the legislature that can stop this? Can the governor put up, could put the bricks in this or or is, this, or is the educrats rule in California can do whatever they want? Well, if enough people push back, which is what happened with ethnic studies, if mm-hmm. enough people write into the California Department of Education, and there's a link there, there's a link that one can send an email and say, hey, I have concerns about this and here's what my concerns are. They, they will be responsive. The, the ethnic studies proposal, which Bill, as you know, went through you know four drafts, yes. received over 100,000 negative comments. Um, right. and, and that's one reason why it had to go through four drafts. Um, and we're glad it went through four drafts. And we're glad Gavin Newsom listened to particular groups, um, including a number of Jewish advocacy groups, because the first couple of the first couple of those ethnic studies drafts were very, very anti-Semitic, um, very much politicized towards Palestinian causes. Um, and you know, we can all have our different opinions about that, but um, what I can say is we've never done a good job educating kids by trying to manifest a political view into the education process. And we're not, you know, right now we're not doing a very good job anyway. So the Department of Education needs to realize that just this is not a matter of talking about uh, Black Lives Matter within the context of doing a geometry problem. This is a problem with the teachers we have teaching geometry, and it's a problem with the culture. There's not a culture of success built into a lot of these classrooms. Um, and that is really what needs to change. And, and ironically, you know, Escalante showed that, I mean, he took a bunch of kids and gangs who had no, who had no really ambition of even finishing high school. He showed that they could be turned into kids who could pass the calculus AP test. But he did that by saying, you are, you have an amazing brain and you are going to achieve and you are going to work. And I will be with you, I will, would be with you step by step in that process. Um, now we're telling people, you know, we better make this, uh, we better make this lesson um, about, uh, about blintzes uh, rather than about pancakes. Um, and that's going to make all the difference in the world. Um, and stakeholders really should be objecting to this because, I mean, even if you don't have kids, there's a lot of money going to California K through 12. We all have a vested interest in seeing how this, uh, this state plays out in the future with our kids and grandchildren. And, um, and this is just another, another, another journey down a failed road. Yeah, I'd also argue, Lee, that if you look at statewide testing results, about half of California students do not meet that standards. So I'm not sure that worrying about environmental and social justice is uh, foremost when it comes to trying to improve math scores. Yeah, no, they're, they're, I mean, just a lot of kids are just failing at the basics. I mean, just failing at the basics. And they are not going to be competitive for the types of jobs that pay the highest salaries uh, in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, computer, computers. Um, information technology, software development, software design. I mean, this is where a lot of the best paying jobs 
are and a bunch of kids are simply not going to be competitive. They're not going to be able to get those jobs because they don't understand. Bill, here, here's an example of how bad it is. They don't, about uh, 40% of 15-year-olds were unable to identify that the fraction 2 over 4 and the fraction 7 over 14 were the same number. You can't do that. You're not going to be developing software apps or figuring out how to design a new a new computer chip. Um, and it's uh, I think it's a crime personally because we're 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 doomed we're dooming a lot of these kids to a life in which they're going to be financially struggling for all their years. Exactly, uh, Bill. Let's transition to your uh, column in California on your mind this week. Uh, you detail California's some of California's history uh, with uh, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and what Golden State politicians might do to punish Russia for its recent recent actions in Ukraine. Uh, can you describe um, what, for example, the um, the state's National Guard has done in support of uh, Ukraine after the collapse of the Soviet Union? And what do you think state leaders might do, uh, what, what they might do more for in contribution of Ukraine's defense? Um, is it is it politically popular for the governor to intervene in, in, in international politics when he has you know several domestic woes, or, or conversely, uh, would focusing on global issues like uh, you know take take the attention off uh, state issues, um, you know off the front pages and raise his national profile? Yeah, you know I think a democratic governor uh, chiming in on a on a war overseas and bigfooting a democratic president probably not be well received back in Washington. I I got to thinking about this column which which ran today. Uh, my columns run on Thursdays. Lee's run on Tuesdays typically. Um, I was thinking about the movie Animal House of all things, and there's a great scene where uh, they're deciding to crash the homecoming parade, and one of them says, "This calls for a really stupid and futile gesture." <laughs> <laughs> We're just the guys to do it. So I thought to myself, okay, what's a stupid and futile gesture? And what came to mind was, uh, you might remember Lee and Jonathan back in 2003 in the lead up to the, uh, the second Gulf War and the invasion of Iraq. And uh, members of Congress were upset that France was not along on the program. And so they decided to change the name of French fries in Congress to Freedom Fries. Uh, and so I thought to myself, okay, what can California do in along, along the lines of Freedom Fries to to mess with Russia, and I started thinking, God, they're gonna they're gonna pass a law to ban uh, you know uh, Moscow mules from menus, or they're gonna change the name of the Russian River, or change the name of the town of Sebastopol. Uh, and I was kind of actually relieved that nothing kind of dumb like that has happened. Those are just kind of silly gestures. We can agree on that. So I did a little digging and found two things. Number one, uh, first of all, Governor Newsom is uh, on the right track here. What he did um, after the war broke out was he uh, sent a letter and he sent it to uh, three groups that handle California funds. One is uh, uh, called CalPERS. Um, that is the uh, California Public Employees uh, Retirement System. Uh, he also, uh, the letter also went to CalSTRS, which is the California State Teachers Retirement System. And then thirdly, the uh, the UC uh, uh, Retirement Fund, which I think probably is a UCLA professor. You might have a little skin in that game. Uh, and what Newsom said was, okay, fellas, I want you to look at your various accounts and I want you to figure out in there what's tied to Russia. And I want you to consider yanking it, which is kind of analogous to what we went through in the 1980s with apartheid in South Africa. Uh, you add all of that up, and I think there's about $970 billion in those three funds, of which about a billion and a half dollars are related to Russia. So it's not much, but it's symbolic. But the big difference is of all things with the California National Guard. Uh, back in 1993, uh, Ukraine and other uh, countries in Eastern Europe were coming into a new existence, no longer Soviet uh, socialist republics. 
trying to find their way and they decide they need to work on their military and their defense. And so uh, they approached the Pentagon and said, can you match us up with state national guards? And so California happened to draw Ukraine. And so for the better part of the last 30 years, California National Guardsmen have been working with their Ukrainian counterparts on just essentially logistics and how to organize a military command. And I think this has actually paid dividends in this war so far, where we see the Ukrainians not just you know, holding their ground in ways we didn't expect, but the military just seems much more organized. So uh, in this regard, California maybe is not directly sending weapons to it, but it's actually played a, a role in this war. Yeah, Bill, a uh, fascinating column. I had no idea about the California National Guard being advisors to, <laughs> to the Ukrainian military. And... Um, and you know they have performed admirably in this uh, in this in this war. Um, you know certainly put up a lot more resistance than Mr. Putin thought before he went into this. And um, I agree with you. I think Newsom did the right thing regarding the those retirement accounts and uh, and and um, and and halting the purchase of uh, of Russian debt. Um, I, I I certainly agree with that with that decision. And from an economic point of view, um, the Russian economy is really suffering. The right. sanctions that have been put on it um, from the US and from, from Europe um, have been substantial and is having a big impact on the Russian economy. I wish I wish Europe wasn't buying so much energy from Russia, um, right. but, uh, but, that is, but that is what it is. Yeah, it's interesting, Lee, you look at this, you look at the economic aspect of, uh, of uh, our dealings with Russia, which is what we are fighting right now, basically an economic war with them. And you know the Russian economy doesn't really tie into California's economy all that much. Um, it's uh, oil, for example. Hawaii is dependent upon Russian oil because it comes from uh, Vladivostok and Pacific side of Russia, but not California. Uh, this is a wholly different creature from if we got into a sanctions war with uh, China and uh, China's economy uh, tying into California in that way. Uh, one final note on this board to transition to other topics, by the way. Um, a member of the Russian Duma, uh, came out with a rather belligerent statement a few days ago suggesting that the United States should return both uh, Alaska, which we purchased from Russia in 1867, but also the uh, Russian outpost of Fort Ross, which is uh, about 90 minutes north of San Francisco. Part of California's history is that the Russians were in uh, California in the 18th and 19th century. They were doing what the other European powers are doing. They were hunting down seals and fur trade and so forth. And if you can still travel up there and see this rather primitive outpost as well. And so everyone on Twitter who has been spamming me for the past few days saying, you know, forget Fort Russ, can we give them San Francisco instead, please? Cease and desist. I get the joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, San Francisco. Yeah. They, that, they'll, yeah. <clears throat> they'll have fun with that one. Well, good, kind of, if, you do ultimately want to, if you do ultimately want to mess with Vladimir Putin and just bog him down into a miserable situation, let him run San Francisco for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, he can he can take over London Breeze job and go to one of those uh, one of those uh, board of supervisors <laughs> meetings. So he'll come out there screaming. Um, and uh, you know, Bill, when I heard about that, um, is is you know, I just thought, is France going to be demanding back the Louisiana Purchase? I mean, we 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 made a pretty good deal. <laughs> we made a pretty good deal on that. Um, yeah. Uh, you had mentioned um, the level of gas prices, uh, gentlemen. Uh, gas prices have risen in California and some places to over $6 at the pump, uh, in part because of pandemic shortages and monetary policy issues, and also in part because of the war in Russia and, and related sanctions. Um, this is somewhat pro problematic for a governor coming into a re-election year. Um, Newsom, Governor Newsom wants to spend an increase in the state's 
gas excise tax, while Republicans want to remove the 51 cent tax altogether, but that was um, that was squashed by uh, Democrats in the legislature. Um, the Democrats, for their part, they want to cut checks uh, uh, related to 200 to $400 for taxpayers and dependents earning less than 250000 mm-hmm. This would be have an estimated cost of six between $6 billion and $9 billion. Um, Governor Newsom, for his part in this, proposes a debit card that would apply even to electronic people who own electronic vehicles, despite benefits that they've already received. Um, Lee, let's start off with you. I remember from my econ class, uh, learning econ 101, learning about Tonstoffel. Uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Who ultimately stands to benefit here, if, if anybody? Well, with uh, you know, with these tax rebates, um, and you know, really very different from the perspective of what Newsom wants to do versus what um, Tony Rendon in the in the legislature wants to do. Um, Newsom wants to give it to everybody, and um, and Rendon wants to make it more more um, uh, income based and also more dependent based. So those with large families would get uh, would get would get more more of a more of a tax rebate. Um, you know, it's it's interesting in that you know people. Well, certainly on the Democratic side, people are calling this you know the Putin gas the Putin gas price increase. But <clears throat> for the last you know, for the last 20, 24 months, gasoline prices have been heading up because crude oil prices have been heading up. Back in the spring of 2020, price of a barrel of oil was below $20 a gallon. I'm sorry, it was below $20, $20 a barrel. And then by last December, so before, before Putin went into Ukraine, it was up to nearly $90 a barrel. So there's been a trend increase in oil prices um, as economies are coming back from COVID. So yeah, the price of oil today is somewhere between $105 and $115 a barrel, depending upon the particular type of oil. So yes, it's higher, probably about 20, 25% higher, but this isn't just about Putin and the Ukraine. This is more of a long run issue and it relates to how much OPEC pumps, um, how much speculation there is within the market for oil, all sorts of things. From the standpoint of the economics, um, when a price goes up, we, you know that's that's really the intersection of supply and demand. And a high price is kind of telling the market, "Hey, it's time to conserve on oil." So these debit cards are you know, giving money back to uh, to consumers. Ideally, we would like the whatever if a tax rebate is provided, we would like it to be applicable. To as many categories as possible, not just for the not just for the sake of uh, of purchasing energy. Um, so that's the bit that's probably like the biggest economic lesson uh, from this. Um, but you know, for you know, it also really kind of highlights the fact that you know the governor and the state legislature on the Democratic side you know often swoon about the remarkable advances that California has made in, in uh, regarding climate change and carbon emissions. Um, California emits um, one third carbon emissions less per household than the rest of the country. San Francisco, three times as a factor of three. I mean, just, uh, just remarkable. Right. But what this highlights is the state is still remarkably <laughs> It's it's uh, it's remarkably dependent on fossil fuels and is going to continue to be remarkably dependent on fossil fuels. 
particularly for middle-income and low-income households. Um, you know, not too many people living in the poor side of town are driving around in Teslas. Um, so this is really going to show that uh, a lot of the virtue signaling about California making strides in clean energy and green energy, um, really, it just really hasn't moved the needle all that much. It's been incredibly costly. Yeah. And it's really not fiscally, it's not fiscally supportive from the standpoint that no matter where you stand on climate change, carbon emissions are a global issue. California is a drop in the bucket. California can't do anything measurable on its own. So if California wants to spend more money on regulations and taxes, uh, limiting fossil fuels, they really should do something about hydrocarbons and carbon monoxide because we still have some of the dirtiest air in the, in the state. Uh, and, th these, and these are immediate health risks. These aren't health risks for 20 or 30 years ahead of time. So it's really very difficult to economically justify you know, all the stuff that California has done in terms of trying to reduce carbon emissions because at the end of the day, it's not moving the needle and it's become very, very expensive. Um, and it's really abusing taxpayers. Yeah, so Lee raises some great points. Let me let me get into the rather crass politics about this, if you will. Uh, so the governor's living kind of in the here and now. Uh, Lee mentioned uh, the idea of this being the Putin tax increase. I looked at polling that our who our colleague Doug Rivers has done on this. That actually polls pretty well as a line. Uh, Republicans, Democrats, and independents go along with it. I guess it is hate Vladimir Putin, so they buy it. So if you're living in the now, the, the immediacy of the Ukrainian war and the immediacy of gasoline prices, which according to AAA are now at, I think, $5.87.5 average statewide. They're much worse up here in Palo Alto. I hate to think what they are down in Santa Barbara, Lee. Um, so Newsom's tied into gasoline tax prices, plain and simple. The legislature, on the other hand, is kind of looking at longer term, bigger picture, which is the cost of living in California. Thus, they have this plan, as Lee mentioned, it's a $200 rebate uh, to every taxpayer and dependent in California, excluding, here's the key, excluding the top 10% of earners. If you're a Democrat, you have to go after the wealthy. So that means if you make over $250,000, you you're out of luck on this one. Uh, the governor's plan, on the other hand, gives everybody in California who has a registered vehicle $400 back. If Leo Hanian has two automobiles, Leo Hanian gets $800 back. If the lovely Mrs. Ohanian has an automobile or two, she gets $400, $800. If son Ohanian starts driving, he has a car, he gets $400 back. Now, it's going to be very interesting to watch the governor and the legislature have a conversation about that. So I say do battle, but when you have a surplus, I don't think you generally fight. You just kind of have conversations in this regard. Uh, the governor's uh, approach is very sexy, I think, because it's tied to gasoline. But I think if you're trying to sell it to a Democratic legislature, gentlemen, uh, you've got a couple of problems. One is going to be just plain and simple, the idea of everybody getting it, i.e. the wealthy. And if I'm a Democratic strategist, I would probably question, let's, let's go to Calabasas, California, and let's look at a very large house in Calabasas. Let's say it's owned by someone, oh, with the last name of Kardashian. And let's suppose that Car that Kardashian house, i.e. a mansion, has 10 cars in it. Uh, I'm not sure a Democratic lawmaker is going to be very wild about giving $400 credits left and right to the Kardashians, if you will, given their income and their lifestyle. Um, going further into this, Lee mentioned, uh, or maybe Jonathan, you did in the intro about uh, this applies to uh, electronic vehicles. If you buy a brand new Tesla, and drive it off the floor. It's a brand new car. The state of California gives you a tax break for that. They give you a credit of up to 7,000 bucks back, a rebate. Uh, so you're already making money off the state in that regard. 
I'm not sure I understand the logic of giving you $400, i.e. to defend off the price of gasoline when you are driving an electric vehicle. So that's going to be kind of a tricky sell. I think also when you uh, look at the economics of Tesla, and I looked this up, guys, um, Tesla owners, the average household uh, owner income of a Tesla Model X owner in 2022 is $146,000. Uh, that is uh, compared to the average median household uh, income of somebody who drives a gasoline car, which is $67,000. So Lee and Jonathan, what you're doing is once again, you're giving $400 to typically, let's say somebody who lives a very good lifestyle on the West side of Los Angeles, commutes back and forth in their Tesla. They don't need the $400. So I think what you're going to get into, and I think the governor's office has already said they're kind of open to this. They're going to look at two things. They're going to look at income, but then they get this uh, tricky conversation, guys, about high-value cars versus regular cars. So, you know, what's what's going to be a high-value car in California uh, versus a regular uh, uh, you know, price car in uh, California as well, and who benefits? So, you know, it's interesting. Last year, they had a lot of money to spend, and they did it without much wrangling. But I think the 2022 uh, might be a little different, given that they have uh, now this uh, issue over what to do with this money going back but also given that it is an election year. And it's very funny, the Los Angeles Times actually wrote about this today and his first words were the governor, quote, who is up for re-election this year, could cap payments, blah, blah, blah. So this is election year politics. Everybody wants to give money back to voters, but there's gonna be a very, uh, very long conversation about in exactly what form. I will say selfishly, by the way, and I'll end the filibuster on this note. Um, I'm actually kind of excited about the governor's plan for one simple selfish reason. It's the first time, and I think the, the entire time I've been here in California that actually I would stand to get money back from the state for something. I always get aced out given, given my family dynamics, given income and so forth. This is actually the only time that I could get money back. I'm just waiting to see how de you know, defeat will be snatched from the jaws of victory. <laughs> You know, once in a blue moon, we can only hope. Um, but, Bill you know, Lee, I, but I do want to pose this question to you, Lee, because it's what Jonathan was getting to as well. You have all this money to give away in California if you so choose, and they're so choosing to give it away, and they disagree in what forms. Do you just give it to people based on their income and, a, and, and their and a standing, or do you give it to them based on their automobile ownership? But if you really are trying to provide economic relief to Californians, Lee, is this the right road to go down? No pun intended. No, it's not. Um with the big surpluses, this is a great time to consider uh, a problem with the California tax code that everybody knows is a problem, including Democrats, that revenue is way too volatile, um, that during the good times, um, and really good times meaning, um, meaning IPOs, meaning stock market gains, meaning private business valuation gains, um, Revenue surges into state coffers, really coming from the top 1%, really top one half of 1%. Uh, and the state is uh, more dependent on that group of people than any other state in the country. So there really should be some modifications in the state tax code to make it less volatile, more stable. Um, that's going to be a tough one to get through because, you know, the those very same Kardashians are the ones that are, are the ones that are paying a lot of money in state income tax, and Democrats want them continuing to do that. Um, and Bill, you know the uh, you know the other thing that strikes me as a little bit ironic is that you know kind of handing out four hundred dollars uh, or maybe eight hundred or twelve hundred, depending on how many cars you have or how many kids you have. Um, and, and, and you know this this is really this is really not meeting the cost of the living challenges most Californians are facing is is state housing prices every month just hit one high after another. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, it's also ironically in that Democrats in California have been debating for years whether or not to do a mileage tax. 
on motorists in California. You would pay a tax if Leo Hanian is burning up the highways. Um, this rebate based on car ownership does not tie into behaviorally in terms of how much you drive. And let me give you an example. The person you're talking to on this podcast, I live right by Stanford University. When the weather is good, I ride my bicycle to work. I drive my car. I'm like a little old lady who proverbially drives to church in the grocery store. I think I drive about 4,000 miles a year. Uh, also leave my car as a hybrid, so I'm not using that much gasoline. It's to the point where I went to the dealership to uh, to uh, get some maintenance done, and the guy said, "You know, when's the last time you 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 drove an entire you know <laughs> drove it down to empty because gasoline goes bad in your car at a certain point?" And I thought, "Oh my God, I need to need to burn up the gas." The point is, I welcome $400 in relief, but Lee, it's not based on the price of gasoline. It kind of ties back into the Democratic measure of cost of living in California. But then the question is going to be, I, as a rather unsympathetic creature, do I deserve the $200 to $400 or who is more deserving? And if so, how much should they get versus the other earners in California? So, you know, we went through this conversation last year where kind of lower end earners in California, you know, got money back, but higher earners didn't. And so I do salute the governor for finally doing something which does actually apply across the board. Um, it just seems to be just, you know, kind of a blunt instrument. By the way, the final note on the Kardashians, they make it $400 back for every car, Lee and Jonathan. I would probably wager most of their driving is done in the back of a very large SUV going to events driven by other people. You know, Bill, there's a um, there's a fellow who lives in Santa Barbara. He's the, um, I think he's the producer for Law & Order, and he's a car collector. Yeah. And he's got an underground garage with something like 40 cars in it. Um, Ferraris, Lamborghinis, you name it. So I don't know. Does that mean he's going to get sixteen thousand back? No, there's a you know the limit for two, but people will be clever about this. If you have eight kids, suddenly you're gonna you're gonna get the Ohanian clan. Everybody's going to own two cars all of a sudden. So it's yeah. just they're gonna have to look at the various loopholes on this. But it will be interesting to watch them have this conversation as we get into June in the heart of the budget conversations, and it will get bogged down along the lines ultimately of one thing for Democrats, which is economics. And Lee, it really does tie into this question, which nobody's answers. what is really kind of the beating heart of the working class in California? And I mentioned that being here in Palo Alto, where a few years ago, they did a survey, Lee, and I think people making $300,000 a year describe themselves as middle class. Yeah, no, no, exactly. I mean, again, if we look at housing, if we look at housing costs, um, and if we look at the overall health of the California economy, um, nationwide, 50% of households can afford a home. In California, it's 25%. And Bill, when you go into Silicon Valley, say, for example, San Mateo, even though some of the highest paying jobs are in that area, only 19% of San Mateo households can afford the median priced home there, which right now is about 2.2 million, mm -hmm. and which requires a qualifying household income at the normal parameters for a loan of $400,000 a year. So, you know, these are just, uh, you know, these numbers are just complete non-starters for almost <laughs> everyone living, everyone living in the country. And again, if we think about the overall health of, uh, of the state's economy, um, what I had hoped that the governor and state lawmakers would have done with you know the large surpluses that they've had very recently is to sort of address the the reality that Silicon Valley, coastal California is horrendously expensive. It's extremely difficult to get stuff built at any type of reasonable cost. There, really, the issue the the housing issue really is to be solved by pushing development dollars into the Central Valley into areas 
outside of coastal California, um, try to get more economic activity there where there's houses below 500,000, below 400,000. Um, I had hoped that they would go in that direction, but, um, but and, and before the pandemic, the governor had had promised an awful lot of money for Fresno and parts of the Sumter Valley. And that kind of 99% of that dried up once the pandemic came along. Let me throw one idea at you, Lee, and then Jonathan, I'll let you segue to the next topic here. Um, I'm thinking it's about something gimmicky. Uh, that would be like a tax holiday in California, like a one-day tax holiday. And let's say you make it July the 4th and call it Independence Day, if you will. One day in California, Lee, where you don't pay the state tax. And you think about this. It may not be much if you spend 10 bucks at McDonald's. Okay, you save, you know, 85 cents or something like that. What if you want to go buy a car on the 4th of July? Now you're talking a pretty good chunk of change. So I don't know what that would do in terms of revenue, Lee. I don't know what it would do in terms of spurring economic activity, but uh, it's just a thought. By the way, to close out on the gasoline thing, um, these lawmakers are dealing with the awfulness of the moment, uh, but they're talking about something which will not take effect until July because this is part of the budget negotiations and new revenues. So uh, you may be trying to help people feeling pain at the pump right now, but you know this is why lawmakers don't work in emergency rooms, I guess. <laughs> Let's look at another uh, quality of life issue for the state. Um, Google and Apple uh, recently announced that they'll be ending their remote work uh, options for uh, many of their workers. Um, this is despite that um, some estimates claim that remote jobs might rise to 25%, from 5% to 25% of the workforce. Uh, Lee, can you describe um, what you think the future of work might look at, look like for the for the state? Yeah, well, most of the most of the folks working uh, remotely have been in um, in a lot of tech areas. So when we look at the number of people working remotely, they tend to be concentrated in relatively expensive, high income cities such as Berkeley, Santa Monica, San Francisco. The people working for Google, for Apple, um, and we've had you know, so we've had all these people working remotely. If you know assuming they could, assuming that was feasible from the standpoint of, uh, of their job description. And now you have Google and Apple kind of calling them back. Um, the Public Policy Institute of California, which is, a, which is a pretty well-regarded research organization in California, conducted a survey of people regarding their preferences for remote work or for working, working in the office. And you know, you're kind of coming in around 20 to 25% of the individuals would like to just, just work, work at home. And then another 30% would like some type of combination, some combination of working at home or working remotely, and then you know, sometimes coming into the office. So there's a big demand among California workers out there for this type of uh, for this type of arrangement. And in terms of demographics, the society is getting older. There's fewer workers. There's fewer people coming from the young, from the the smaller generations joining the workforce. So, from a supply supply demand perspective, if workers really really going to be wanting to work remotely, then to recruit a worker, to recruit a high quality, competent, qualified worker, you may end up having as an employer, you may end up having to provide that as an option. So. I suspect that we'll probably see more and more of this in California. It's really, really hard to predict, um, you know, given this is such a new issue, but it could go a long ways towards solving some of the housing affordability 
stuff. So, goes, so I think Apple is uh, right now, it, uh, it's requiring workers to work one day a week at the office. And I think they're going to ramp that up in, uh, in later in April to about three days a week. And I think, Lee, Jonathan, that's also the Google plan to have people in three days a week. Um, that's complicated because if you want to live far away from the office, um, doing three days a week, you're going to have to either find somebody's sofa to live on uh, for you know three nights or two nights, or you're going to have to rent an apartment or go in an apartment with somebody. So it's kind of an awkward relationship. Uh, but I was fascinated, Lee, when you said that this is really, you know, I, I when I first thought about this, I thought, okay, people are fleeing to Lake Tahoe and they're fleeing to other states. It's getting you know, way far away from California, but you're suggesting that's not the case. So maybe that's a function of people perhaps living in nice homes. Uh, maybe it's a function of just the work they do, Lee and Jonathan, that they have laptop jobs, which, you know, kind of we do as well. You can just live through Zoom. Um, but it does raise the question, Lee, about just how the California economy is going to reshape. I I did an event at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco a couple of Mondays ago, and I had to drive up for it. And uh, in the old days, pre-pandemic days, this was not fun because you had to be there for a six o'clock event, which meant leaving, um, uh, driving out the San Francisco Peninsula in the heart of rush hour traffic, just hand-to-hand combat. And uh, it would normally take about an hour and a half just fighting through traffic, put you in a bad mood by the time you got there. Uh, I got door-to-door in 40 minutes because there was absolutely no traffic. This is in the financial district of uh, San Francisco, where usually workers are pouring out at 5 5 o'clock to catch the ferry across the bay. Very few people walking around. The event ended, Lee and Jonathan, at about 7.30. The streets were empty, save about three homeless people. Uh, I walked very fast to the garage a block away, just thinking this is how muggings happen. Uh, By the way, footnote on that, the invitation, I've gotten several of these from San Francisco events. I always say, you know, as for parking, there's a garage a block away, or you can park on the street. There's always a parenthesis at your own risk. Uh, But it does raise a question, uh, Lee, when you look at the future of a San Francisco or Los Angeles or San Diego, large California centers, which rely in part upon a thriving downtown, people doing nine to five every day in 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 the city and all the ancillary things which come with it, which is stores and restaurants and hotels and all that. If the workforce is going to be hollowed out, let's say a quarter of it taken away or maybe even a third or half of it, what's going to happen to downtown activity? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's that's a huge issue for San Francisco because it's always been, you know, the West Coast city that was very downtown oriented, as right. as as opposite Los Angeles, which had which had really just a nothing downtown sector uh, for decades, and more recently, which has has gotten investment to try to make that try to make that more of a center of activity. Um, but no, this would be very crippling for San Francisco. Uh, on, the, on the plus side, it could be that you ch- you turn some of those high-rise office buildings into housing, um, these prices a little bit, and you'd have sort of a different type of vibe there. Um, not so much a commercial vibe, but a, but a residential vibe. Um, but this really does call into question what these cities will be like, and the most expensive ones are going to be the ones that are going to be most uh, vulnerable to this type of activity, because... You know, if you can get instead of hiring somebody for a quarter million dollars a year because they've got to live, they've got to live in San Francisco and uh, and be able to, you know, and they're going to want to be able to purchase a home. They can live in a much less expensive area and 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 do it remotely. Um, in fact, my old my oldest son right now is living just outside Dallas, Texas. He's a he's a. Uh, uh, a network engineer for an internet service provider company. He lives in uh, just outside Dallas, Texas, and the firm he works for is in Illinois. And he goes to see them maybe about 10 days a year. 
Um, so again, but he's also a laptop. He's also a laptop guy. Um, and uh, and then you know the, what's this is gonna, you know and Bill, what's going to happen from this is there'll be kind of the requisite calls for equity and who gets to who gets to work at home and what you know and the poor workers that still have to serve a cup of coffee or or or, or wait staff they're not going to be able to work at home so that's going to come up as well. It's interesting if you look at San Francisco right now, Lee and Jonathan. Uh, to the extent that people people are moving back in, it's Gen Z that's moving back in, and it's Gen Z renters. So these are people who are there for maybe six months or a year. It's not a lifetime commitment to San Francisco, and it does raise the question. I guess Lee, one thing this would point to is this would seem like a very wise time to uh, scarf up uh, uh, business property, if you will, if you want to if you want to rent property in San Francisco or Los Angeles. It sounds like there's a good deal to be had. Yeah, yeah, there is. And the downtown business organizations in San Francisco and Los Angeles are having meetings and having strategy sessions about how to how to revive those areas. Um, and it's it's really kind of a collective action problem because there's a bunch of businesses in each in each location and they've all had their workers out working remotely. So this is a, this is a major issue. Um and one that's more important for San Francisco than uh, than Los Angeles. Uh, Bill, before you uh, before this podcast, uh, you you talked about um, a tweet that came out from uh, Assemblywoman Jackie Irwin. You said it was the tweet of the week. Um, she said this morning, "My bill on organized retail theft failed before the Assembly Public Safety Committee. While Ventura may have Ventura Sheriff and Ventura DA off DA office." I guess the rest of California will have to rely on Batman to save them from organized retail theft, uh, quote unquote. Now, Irwin is a Democrat who served in Sacramento since 2014. Uh, Bill, what does this tell us about the future influence of policymakers like Irwin in the legislature who can at least be a moderating influence on quality of life issues such as crime? Or should should we just uh, signal the bat light on this one? I think we should save some energy in California because it will get hot here sooner or later. We need all the electricity we can have. And I think we could save a little juice by not lighting the bat signal because I don't think Batman or Superman or Aquaman or anybody from League of Justice or the Avengers or pick your favorite superheroes. Nobody seems on their way in Sacramento to um, to do much on crime. It's uh, it's interesting. I, I wanted to raise this point with us because we have had this arrangement in Sacramento for years. The idea is Democrats dominate Republicans are pretty much non-existent because they don't even have, uh, uh, you know, they don't have a minority can make a difference on votes. Um, but there is a group of Democrats called those moderates, or so-called mod squad, as they've been called for years, who in theory do two things. There are enough of them where they can block a bad thing from happening, and they can also make noise and just kind of stop things. Uh, the mod squad has made a lot of noise when it comes to criminal justice matters. Uh, they have tried to uh, pass various things. Uh, there have been proposals to expand jurisdiction for prosecuting thefts and lowering uh, threshold for felony property thefts, which is at the heart of this problem. Uh, Proposition 47 raised the level um, to which you uh, consider a theft a felony. It raised it from, I think, $400 Lee, up to, what, 950 I believe. Uh, so now Democrats want to lower that back down. Uh, but the powers that be in Sacramento, the very progressive Democrats who seem to have the run of the place, they won't do this. And the chorus they keep coming back to is we don't want to fill up the prisons. And this is just a push and pull, which Democrats are going to be fighting nationally, I think, as well. They won't pay the price in California, but I think they will nationally when it comes to this idea of being lax on crime. The point of this, you have some Democrats um, Somebody, for example, Rudy Salas, he's a, a modern assembly Democrat who's trying to win the 
uh, 21st Congressional District in Central Valley. This is a narrowly held Republican seat uh, by David Valdeo. He would have a shot at it, but I just guarantee you that Valdeo will hang this around his neck saying that he is a soft on crime Democrat like the West of them. But it does raise the question, Lee and Jonathan, and moving forward about whether or not there is a mod squad in Sacramento, how large that squad is. Is it a genuine squad? Is it just a few people in the back of a car or not? And what if any influence they really have left in the legislature? Because you would think that given you know the prevalence of crime in California, the high profile it has, uh, what this effect we've seen uh, with the recalls in Los Angeles, San Francisco, you would think the legislature would react to this and, and show some progress, but they're not. No, and Bill, you're um, you're absolutely right. The, I, th- I think the motivation behind 47 um, was to keep, you know, quote low-level unquote criminals uh, out of a very very expensive state prison system, uh, the most expensive in the in the country. Um, and without <laughs> without the without the potential stick, um, we're just going to get a lot more of this. And and it's not just it's not just the $900 smash and grab from the CVS and the Walgreens. Violent crime is way up in the, in the state. Um, homicides are way up in the state. So this is, yeah. gas prices is an issue that voters really care about and safety crime is an issue that voters really care about. So this is a case, uh, Bill, where, being in the majority, um, you know, may cost some, may, may cost some of these folks, uh, because this is an issue that uh, everybody, including the progressives, when it, you know, when it, when it hits close enough to home, they're going to get angry about. Yeah, essentially, if you uh, watched any of the uh, Supreme Court hearings uh, this week with Katanji Brown-Jackson, uh, you notice Republicans doing two things. First of all, um, they kept invoking the ghost of Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, and his treatment. Uh, one senator said, we're not going to talk about beer, because remember, his drinking came up. Um, and why is that? Because Republicans get very whipped up when you talk about Kavanaugh and his treatment and the court in general. But the secondly, you had, I think it was Ted Cruz, who uh, did this, really went after her very hard on her work on the uh, Sentencing Commission, the U.S. Sentencing Commission. And that's because, and the idea was, uh, was I guess, uh, child porn is what they pointed out. But it's getting to a larger topic, and that's the perception of one party as being weak on crime. And so, that's why this topic, I think, is salient to California. You do have Democrats who are not in safe districts who want to, who want to take out Republicans when crossover districts. But this issue is just again just going to be a millstone for them because they will not act on it in Sacramento. And you know what's the worst thing in politics? Reinforcing a negative impression. Yeah, yeah. This is not going to play well for them. And um, and Bill, what's the you know based on your assessment of of politics within the Democratic Party? Do you have kind of a rough idea about how many would fit into this moderate category? Uh, it used to be about a dozen or so, Lee. I would say maybe a half a dozen right now. It's really? a small, yeah. And, you know, one of the problems, ironically, has been redistricting, where redistricting, ironically, and the open primary system was supposed to ironically produce more people in the middle. It hasn't worked that way. Uh, you end up getting two Democrats in the in the final runoff in some districts, and the more liberal Democrat usually prevails. Right, right. And, you know, Bill, the... The homelessness issue is another thing that's coming back to bite the party because you know no matter no matter what district you're in, homelessness, particularly in coast, particularly in coastal California, homelessness is a problem. And uh, from my from what I'm hearing, 
representatives are getting an earful from their constituents about this, you know, from the standpoint of, hey, do something, <laughs> do yeah. something, get rid of this tent encampment, get rid of this person that's lying on the sidewalk passed out. Um, and the progressive way has been harm reduction, harm reduction, drug policies, essentially accept drug use as a normal part of life. So, you know, again, those Democrats running in those close to call districts, they're not going to they're going to have trouble with this as well. Yeah. And a final note, I'll let you guys go after this. It's um, I don't think it affects legislative races, state legislative races that much. That's because Democrats just control most districts already. They're at a high water mark and there's just not much room to go. Uh, but where it does play in mightily, I think, is the congressional races here in California. There is the Valdeo seat that I mentioned. There's another one further down the uh, uh, Devin Nunez's old district, which may go Democratic because of the way that we've drawn it, it's now leans Democratic. But then you get down to Orange County, uh, formerly the home of Jonathan, by the way, who I think we need to shout out is now a former Californian. He has fled the state, Lee. I guess we have finally uh, been so bitter about the state that we forced the man to leave. But if you're like a Trump, Jonathan, you won't get your $400 rebate now. Ha, ha, ha. That's right. <laughs> but, but no, I think it will play out in the congressional races because I think Kevin McCarthy is probably a smiling man right now because you do want to, you know, you do want to make these races local if you can. And so if you can tie your local Democratic candidate in those races into the follies up in Sacramento, all the better for your Republican incumbent. So uh, it may work out to McCarthy's benefit because California is kind of a funny state. It's uh, the statewide races are not competitive, as we well know. Uh, but it is that rare state where Democrats could make some pickups in an otherwise bad year in these districts. But just mark my words, the more the legislature dickers around on matters like crime and homelessness, it's just going to make it the tougher for a Democrat to win a congressional seat. Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to say, A2, Jonathan? <laughs> well, Jonathan had very shallow reasons. Apparently, he wanted to do something as crazy as buy a home. That's right. You know, as you know, the home prices are pretty outrageous in California, so... It's just uh, it was time and it, it was it was you know time to do this for for my family so yeah no well it, it, you and you and hundreds of thousands of others are making the exact same decision so congratulations on your new home thank I'm sorry you I couldn't be in, sorry I couldn't be in uh, overpriced California right <laughs> well thank you thank you very much gentlemen this has been very interesting time and timely analysis um, you've been listening to matters of policy and politics the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Hanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also, check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Haney write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Voigtis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.